Amen. You can be seated. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Thank you, Donnie and musicians. What beautiful, truth-filled songs we offered up to God this morning. Matthew chapter 6, we'll go ahead and begin. We're continuing with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, on the mountain to his disciples. The words I read earlier were words from the Lord of heaven and earth, the Son of the Creator, the one who bled and died for you and for me. And his words are designed in this section where he talks about treasures in heaven, that the words are designed to root out mediocrity in us, to reveal a double-mindedness in us. There is an important choice that each of us has to make in our lives when we hear the gospel is that are we going to be freed from our sin by Jesus? Are we going to hear the good news that Jesus died on a cross not not to make you religious, but to make you free. That Jesus offered up Himself as a perfect, sinless sacrifice on the cross. He died in the place where you should die. He suffered the punishment that you should suffer. And He offers Himself as a stand-in for you. As a substitute for you so that you can have the life of God. So that you can have your relationship with God back. Not that you ever had it to begin with, but sin took it from you when you were born into this world. It has separated you from God. And the choice that every person that hears the gospel has to make is, am I going to accept that message of salvation? Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to be free? But then after that, there's the matter of living the Christian life. And the Christian life ought to be lived by people who have been changed. It's not just something you check off of a list. Oh, I did that. I think that's one of the reasons we have so many unsaved people, unconverted people, sitting in pews all across America today is because we've reduced the gospel down to this decisionism, this choice that is made, this religious action. It's a cheap religious action where if I just pray a prayer, I can can write my ticket to heaven and then live however I want to live. Forgetting the fact that the gospel, that Jesus in John chapter 3 said that it is a new birth. That though your sin nature will remain, there is a new part of you that has been given life. You have been awakened unto God. And now you are beginning to grow as a child of God, as a baby that is growing into a mature adult, into someone that is like Jesus, who loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. And so Jesus comes in at this point in His sermon to His disciples to give them some clear direction, to give them some indicators of who they are and where they're going. We all battle this double-mindedness within ourselves. Singleness of purpose. Bishop Ryle said, singleness of purpose is the greatest secret of spiritual prosperity. Singleness of purpose. The church in America is a divided church. One of the reasons that persecution, although persecution is a terrible, terrible thing, but one of the things that it does end up producing and that God uses it for, I'll say it that way, 
in churches in foreign countries is that it gives them a singleness of purpose because they realize what they've got. They're just trying to survive. They're trying to, to thrive as God's people, but they're trying to survive the persecution and to live for God, and they have a singleness of purpose. They know what they've got. But we have divided ourselves. We're distracted. We have divided loyalties. Do you feel that you are often divided in your loyalties, in what you want, in what you should be doing? Are you divided in your devotion to Jesus in His kingdom? I think most of us would say yes, if we're honest. And speaking to a young ruler who asked Jesus about heaven, this would be on the screen, Jesus looked at this young ruler who was asking him questions, and he said, uh, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Because this young ruler said, well, I've done all this. I've checked all the boxes. I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I pray. I do all of these things. And Jesus said, go. Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now, Jesus wasn't telling this man, if you give away all of your stuff, you'll have salvation, you'll earn salvation. Jesus is pointing out to the young man that this is holding you back from me. You will have life when you are free from the entrapments of this world and when you are following me. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. There'll be some hard words this morning. I pray you listen. But the disciples were astonished at his words. And again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There are definitely choices in our lives. Some of you today, you need to choose to accept Christ for the first time, to turn from your sin and to turn to Him. You need to make the choice to be a disciple of Jesus. And those of you that are disciples of Jesus, we have the choice every single day to wake up and to follow Him. There's a daily, moment by moment, minute by minute, decision that we have to make. This is part of what it means to mature as a Christian. It means that we train ourselves. We discipline ourselves. We grow to where we are making the right decisions every single day, every single minute, every single hour, because our vision is clear. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Jesus knew us, didn't He? He knew that we are prone to wander as a wandering sheep. Sometimes we wander due to ignorance or confusion as to what the truth is. Sometimes we wander due to wickedness. Sometimes we wander because we're deceived. Let us keep in mind that a wandering sheep, though, is in a very dangerous situation, no matter the reason that he is wandering. And Jesus points very clearly out for us this morning what the only choices are that we have. He points us to the path that we need to be on. And so we're going to look at three choices that Jesus gives us this morning. The first is a choice of loves. He gives us a choice of loves. Verses 19, 20, and 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God cares about our hearts. 
God doesn't need our treasure. God doesn't need us. He has chosen out of the overflow, out of the fullness of who He is to pour out love onto us. That's how He operates. He doesn't operate out of need. He operates out of fullness. And He has chosen to pour out Himself onto us. And so He cares in His heart about your heart and what you care about and what you're driven by and what you're trapped by in some of your cases. The heart is the seat of your will and your desire. It's the core of what drives you. It's what you care about. It's what you love. And verse 21 can help us diagnose the conditions of our heart. You love what you treasure. That seems pretty basic, but sometimes we, we miss that. In fact, some of you this morning, you've already taken yourselves out of this sermon. Surely this sermon isn't for me. Right? I love Jesus. I go to church. I haven't killed anybody. haven't done anything really wicked. And so there's no issue with my heart and what I treasure. But friends, I'll tell you this. There, is none of a, there, there are none of us in this room this morning that are exempt from this message. The words of Jesus apply to us all. Let's ask and answer a few questions of what Jesus says here. The first thing is, we need to ask the question, what are earthly treasures? What are earthly treasures? One of the reasons that I would have been tempted to take myself out of this sermon this morning is because for most of my uh, college and young adult life, I was broke. <clears throat> okay? <clears throat> I remember a conversation with Aunt Claire. I told her, listen, I, had to, I have to reveal this to you because you know, I wasn't really taking her on a lot of dates when we were dating and I had to just kind of just come out and say it one time which she was very gracious but I had to say the reason I'm not we're not doing a whole lot is I've only got two hundred dollars to my name I said you know I'm not in debt but I don't have any money and I need that two hundred dollars for for this and that you know whatever and she was so gracious about that but in America we need to remember that whether you consider yourself broke or not Everybody in America is wealthy. Amen? If you've got change in your pocket, if you've got a phone, if you've got transportation, if you've even got a bicycle, you have more than most of the world. Earthly treasures are primarily the things that are material in this passage. When Jesus is talking about wealth and He's talking about treasure, it is primarily material but that's not all that it is Jesus points out the lack of security we have regarding our possessions in this world when he mentions thieves what we have we work our whole lives to build up things and it's not secure you can buy a safe you can buy a security system. And maybe those things are good to do. But ultimately, there's no eternal security for what some people spend their lives working for. He mentions moths. And he mentions rust. Those signify time. Time will destroy everything. Everything you've worked for, one of these days, you're going to pass away and you can't take it with you. 
Think about that for a minute. Are you caught up in the worldly push to achieve, to be successful? When a famous person dies, everybody mourns for that famous person for a few days and then he's forgotten. His wealth goes to somebody else. There are things you can work and devote your life to on earth that are not secure and will not last. And so that also does not apply only to material treasures. In America, the possibilities are countless. It could be anything that has your affection, anything that has your love, anything that has your time, anything that has your money, anything that has your energy more than God does. It could be your reputation. The earthly treasure, the worldly treasure that you try to store up could be your approval before others. It could be your clothes and how you look. It could be your makeup collection. It could be your achievements, your sports, or your academics. It could be your success, that promotion that you're looking for, that project that you just finished. It could be your cell phone. It could be your Instagram or your Facebook account. It could be your hobbies. It could be food or entertainment or relaxation. It could be the memories or the experiences that you are trying so desperately to store up and to have in your memory bank. I just thought about this the other day. How many pi- I love taking pictures. How many pictures do we take that we never go back and look at again? We're trying to capture these memories. By all means, keep taking pictures, but just realize you've only got so much space on your wall, right? That's always the problem. What do I do with 10,000 pictures? I can't put them on my wall. It's, it could be storing up memories. It could be places that you want to go. It could be your pets. It could even be what some people would call a bucket list. A bucket list can be an extremely worldly thing. How do I know that I'm living to treasure these things? Well, one thing I'm not going to do this morning, I'm not here to make any rules that Jesus hasn't already made. All I can tell you about is your wicked heart and my wicked heart and hope that we run to Jesus together to help Him, to get Him to help us figure this out. I'll tell you um, a story. The other day I bought a $15 bag of, of grass seed. Now, some of you that know how tight I am, that that purchase probably surprises you. Some of you wouldn't bat an eye at a $15 bag of grass seed. For me, it's like like a a spiritual warfare going on as to whether I need to spend $15 on a bag of grass seed. But we've got this spot in our yard that that I'm I'm trying to grow grass in. And so I bought this uh, bag of seed. And... What it did bring up in my life was it made me begin to question even more, whose kingdom am I living for? You know, $15, and I'm going to put a guilt trip on you this morning, okay? $15 will support a missionary in Ghana, West Africa for an entire month. 
$15 will provide a meal or two for you to take somebody out and spend some time in one-on-one discipleship and talk to them about their problems and talk to them about Jesus. $15 will buy somebody a Christian book to help them with an issue. Am I sowing seeds into God's kingdom as I'm sowing seeds into my yard? Am I willing to water and to till the the dirt and to, to plow and to do hard work when it comes to God's kingdom, when it comes to heavenly treasures as I am in my own backyard? Maybe the problem is that we don't know what storing up treasures in heaven means or looks like. What is storing up treasures in heaven? It's this. Storing up treasures in heaven is using your life and your means that God has given you to wholeheartedly work to make followers of Jesus and to worship Him. It is living for the kingdom, His kingdom, not trying to build your own. Your own kingdom's not going to last. His kingdom is. Notice I said in there, trying to make disciples. Ultimately, it's God who has to make a disciple, who saves someone. But our goal as Christians, as believers in Christ, is we want to multiply what God has done in our lives in the lives of others. And so we're going to try to make disciples. This is why giving sandwiches to the poor and never sharing the gospel is not what storing up treasures in heaven is talking about. Now, you may give food to the poor, and we do that here at Wyatt. But the underlying motive and the goal and the root is for people to know Jesus. Amen? This is where churches that have left the Bible and they've gone into humanitarian aid, this is where they have left off. They think that because they're doing good deeds and they're putting little scriptures up in their window or on their mirror and they're feeding the hungry, they think they're doing God's work. But if we never share the gospel and if we never try to make disciples and if our heart cries not to multiply and to reach every tribe and every tongue and every nation on planet earth, then we've got the wrong mindset about storing up treasures. It's not a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Prosperity gospel preachers, the way they talk, the way they would abuse this verse is to say, hey, do this and you, selfish you, you'll get all this stuff in heaven. And I understand that there is a self-motive there that God gives, but it's it's not a selfish motive. It's a desire to see all people loved. It's a desire to see God loved and glorified. It's not a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's people that you influence toward heaven. It's future joy in an everlasting kingdom, not being all wrapped up in this kingdom. It's hobbies, it's leisure, it's entertainment, it's music, it's movies, it's wealth. Luke 12, 27-34, let's read that together. It says, consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink. And do not be anxious. Ho! This needs to be the life verse of a lot of people in our church. I know for a fact there are countless men and women struggling deeply with anxiety and worry and fear. There are marriages 
that had been broken up over concerns of money. There are fears about whether you're a good enough mother. Whether you look the way that you ought to look. Or what you're going to do in some other situation. Don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink and do not be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things and your Father knows that you need them. Friends, we're here together this morning because we have a Father who knows that we need these things. Amen? That's not good enough. Amen? We could get some powerful testimonies this morning of how God our Father has provided for families in this church. Some of you could stand up and give more powerful testimonies than I could ever preach in this pulpit about how God has been faithful to you. Remember that and hold on to it. Verse 31, But seek His kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Do not be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says it again there. Do we care about Christian brothers and sisters who are struggling? Do we care about the lost? Do we care about the kingdom of God more than we care about our achievements? More than we care about our wealth? More than we care about our experiences? More than we care about our hobbies? More than we care about our pets? I'm going I'm to get in trouble. I know I'm going to get in trouble. I could, I could stand up here and I could talk about a thousand things and nobody would get mad. But when I start talking about pets, some of you are going to get really angry at me. But I want to point out the obvious to some of you. And I know, and take this from somebody that grew up, I grew up with a lot of dogs. I grew up hunting. I understand what it is to love and to value a pet. God can give a pet to you as a companion. God can give a pet to you to care for and to steward. We, as children of God, ought to be all about stewarding God's resources and taking care of animals and managing them in a way that pleases Him. But I want to say the obvious to you. An animal is not a person. If we say that men, women, and children are made in the image of God, then we need to live like it. And we don't need to treat our little foo-foo pets or Fido or whatever their name is. We don't need to treat them as if they're people. They're not people. They're not at risk of going to hell. The church of Jesus Christ in America, I think, is more often concerned with our pets and we spend more money on dog toys and dog food and dog houses than we do on people that are going to go to hell. We need to be weeping about that. Hope none of you leave the church because I started talking about your pets. I hope you listen to what I'm saying here. It could be other issues. We're all idolaters at heart. We're idolaters at heart. And we've got a mountain of ways to justify everything that we do in our lives. In fact, many of you, through the course of this sermon, you've already been going through mentally the pattern of your life and the possessions that you have, and you're justifying every single thing that you're doing. And you've already squeezed God out so much. And I know this because in my crooked mind, I'm even doing it as I'm preaching the sermon. 
The Bible is definitely true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why your preacher needs Jesus too. In fact, well, let me say this. I thought about throwing out the typical qualifications that we do in a sermon. You know, when we say, when we go through things and we say, you know, well, this, this isn't bad in and of itself. You know, going and doing this, that's not bad. You know, that could be a good thing. I'm not going to do any of that this morning. Because I believe God wants me to not let you off the hook. The burden of proof is on you. It's up to you to prove to God whether what you're doing and the way that you're living and the way that I'm living and how I'm spending my money and what I'm storing up, the burden of proof is on us to prove to God that what we're doing is okay with Him. Or whether or not it's just some worldly treasure that we've justified. If we knew, friends, if we knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, if we knew, if we had an announcement today, and in 24 hours, King Jesus was going to return, and we knew that for a fact, do you think you would be spending your life doing a fraction of what you're doing right now? I know I wouldn't. I would be in desperation mode to live for the kingdom. And I think that's where we're going as a church. That's what's exciting to me. But if we're going to get there, we've got to continue to plow up the hard ground. That's one of the reasons that so many churches in America and the South that have such access to the truth are doing nothing. It's not that they don't have access to the truth. It's rain falling on hard ground. Amen? Look in your own heart. You're used to doing this. You've been doing it your whole life. I've been doing it my whole life. We have to till up the hard ground in our own lives. Let's quit giving God the scraps, the leftovers of our heart and our love. This is not a recommendation from Jesus. He says, people in my kingdom don't lay up earthly treasures. It's not characteristic of them. 1 John chapter 2 is on the screen. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who, one who does God's will will remain forever. We have a choice today and every day about who we're going to love and what we're going to love. And God cares about our hearts and He wants us to make a better investment. Second and very quickly, we have a choice of lights. Verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? <clears throat> okay. I've often heard these verses used in reference to sexual issues and sexual topics regarding lust and adultery and things like that. And I'm not saying that we can't take away, I think we can take away some applications in that area regarding those topics, but that's not what it's about. This passage, th these verses on the eye, this is sandwiched between what Jesus says about treasures and what he's going to say about serving masters. And so it's all part of the same passage. He's talking about the eye here with regard to materialism. He's still talking about our devotion to the Lord, but he's talking, talking about the trap of materialism and wealth. And he's telling us that we have two choices. We can have a good eye or we can have a bad eye. Um, 
Now, obviously, it's not that easy with our actual physical eyes. He's talking metaphorically here. I would love to just choose to have good eyes and not wear these glasses. <clears throat> He's using the eye uh, as an illustration here. He's using it as a figure because it is typically through the eye that we see things and then want them. It's not the only way that we come about wanting things. A blind person can store up worldly treasures. But it is typically through the eye that we see things and then want them. We can see good things, we can see bad things. We can see clearly or our vision can be blurred. And so your eye here symbolizes your focus. If your focus is off, if your goal is off, if your ambition is off, then the rest of your life will be off. But if your focus is good, if your lamp is well lit and you can see clearly, the rest of your body, which here is your life, will be healthy and full of light. Choose what you're going to focus on and let that focus be singular. And so we see God not only cares about our heart, as we saw with the first choice, but he also cares about our body or our whole life. Did you see that? He talks about if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of life. Sometimes we get the idea that God only is con he's only concerned with heaven and um, when he says to store up treasures in heaven that he's only concerned about heaven. But part of the truth is that God cares about your here and now. He cares about... One of the reasons he's saying all of this to you is not just to make sure your bank account in heaven is, is good. Okay? He's not saying that. He's saying, I care about you. The here and now. But to really get on the right track, the right track, he's got to make us focus on the light of eternity. Let me give you an illustration. <clears throat> if you wanted to walk a straight mile, there's a number of ways you can do that. And they're going to produce different results. The worst way that you can walk a straight mile is to walk with your head down, watching your feet. Anybody tell me what's going to happen after you do that for a while? Anybody? Be off course. You're going to go crooked. You might walk into the road because you're watching your feet. I think that's what a lot of us are doing in our daily lives. We get up in the morning and we go through the, the regular routine of stuff and we're watching our feet. And that's how we get off track. But, if we've got a focal point about a mile out, and we walk straight toward that point, we'll go a lot straighter. That's what God is doing here. The first light, that focal point, we have the option of choosing, is the kingdom of King Jesus. Seeking the kingdom of Jesus. That is our focus. That's our good eye. The second light that we have an option to choose is really no light at all. Look at verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So what he's saying here is that this is no light at all. It's really a deception. This is the person who thinks they have the light of God, but they really don't. And so the light that they say they have is really a dark deception. You know, that's a scary thought. I, I, as I was studying for this message, I kept going back to this because it was such a scary thought because deception is really scary. Because how do you know you're deceived? How do you know? 
I ask the question to you, do you believe that you are deceived regarding some aspect of your life and how you're living or what your walk with Christ is or needs to be or whether you even know Him? Do you really have the light? Are you focused on the kingdom or is the light that you have a fake light? Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The only way, friends, that we get out of the deception is we've got to have the light. And Jesus said in John that He is the light of the world. And it says also that He was the light of men, that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the one who can show us the path. Jesus is the one who can give us the direction. Jesus is the one who can take our bad eye and give us a good eye. And so don't misunderstand me today. I'm not giving you a guilt trip to go get religion. I'm encouraging you to draw near in desperation to King Jesus. Draw near to Him. That brings us to our third choice, a choice of Lord's choice of lords god not only cares about your heart he cares about your life in the here and now your body as it would be but he also cares about your identity he cares about who you belong to and you have a choice of masters a choice of lords you have a choice of loves you have a choice of lights and you have a choice of lords verse 24 no one can serve two masters this is not the idea of an employer this is the idea of a master that you are a slave to. We are slaves to Christ. And we love being slaves to Christ because He's such a good Lord. But it's that idea of a master. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When Jesus was tempted in Luke chapter 4, in verse 5 it says, Satan took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And our Lord Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him alone shall you serve. Friends, Jesus well understood the temptation to let materialism, to let success, to let wealth, to let the opportunity for power and authority and even comfort. He understood those temptations and He understood how those things can distract us from devotion to the Father. He was tempted in the strongest ways possible by the strongest enemies. And yet, as the book of Hebrews tells us, He was tempted but was without sin. And his words to the greatest enemy, Satan, were these. God alone shall you serve. He had a singular focus. Moses tells us of the spies that went into the land of Canaan that only Caleb and Joshua were not judged because they followed God completely. They wholly followed God. They fully followed God. 
They were storing up treasures in heaven. They had their eye set on God and His kingdom. And they chose one Lord. I don't know where God's going to lead you this morning. I know some of these are hard words. But I wrote a little article for the paper um, early in the year about resolutions. And they'd asked me to, to write about resolutions. As I sat down and, and was working on my own resolutions, it just dawned on me, you know what? I don't need to resolve anything other than to repent. Sometimes what we need is not new things in our lives, not new rules, not new goals. We need to go back to what we're doing and we need to repent of what we're doing. Maybe we need to get something out. Maybe for some of you, there is repentance needed because you're pursuing something that God does not want you to pursue. It could be sinful or it could be good, but it's not of God. I don't know what specifically God will speak to you today, but I pray that you will listen. I want to close with 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19 on the screen. I want to close both a, a, as an exhortation and also an encouragement about the great God that we serve. Verse 17, the Apostle Paul says this, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. Sometimes... Friends, we hear the words of God and our hearts, our crooked, wicked hearts, tell us that God's trying to take from us. But as we've read this morning and as we've heard in this message, God is for us. And He's not trying to take from us. He's trying to give us real life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for caring for us and loving us you meet our needs, and you provide everything that we could ever want, our heart's desires. Help us to not be distracted by the things of this world. Yes, God, there are some things that we, we have to do. Help us to be responsible. But God, help us to not use those things as justification to embrace worldliness. Help us to live radically for the gospel and for your kingdom. Help us to be wise, but help us to take risks for you. And help us to realize that it's not really a risk at all because you're taking care of us. God, we thank you for being a good father today, and we pray that you will continue to bless our worship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.